0: Welcome to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lelchuk. If you like what you hear, I'd love you to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Write a review, and if you're so inclined, tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. Be sure to visit our website, TalkingBeats.com, where you can find much more information about the guests, support the show in various ways, sign up for the newsletter, and be in touch directly with me. As always, the dialogue continues on social media at Talking Beats Podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me. Now, to the conversation. On today's program, architecture historian Victoria Newhouse. She's one of the world's foremost authorities on modern architecture and writes regularly for the New York Times, Architectural Digest, and other leading publications. Her books which chronicles some of the most important projects and people in the field over the past decades include Towards a New Museum, Art and the Power of Placement, and Sight and Sound, the Architecture and Acoustics of New Opera Houses and Concert Halls. She's turned her attention now to public outdoor spaces, and is out with a new book titled Parks of the 21st Century, Reinvented Landscapes, Reclaimed Territories. In the book, she and the photographer Alex Pisha take us on a journey from Bordeaux to Brooklyn, from Shanghai to Mexico City, from Detroit to Philadelphia, and many other places to paint a picture of what modern urban parks are today in the 21st century. How many acres and at what cost does it take? What is the role of a public urban space today? How much extra importance has the COVID pandemic placed on having outdoor, accessible space And how, with the thinking of Bright Minds, can an abandoned industrial wasteland become a glorious outdoor experience? Well, here to tell us, Victoria Newhouse. Welcome. Thank you. Why this book? Why did you want to turn your attention to urban settings, to parks, to things that maybe are sort of new in terms of cityscapes? You make a big distinction in this book between uh, the parks of the old days, uh, uh, whether it's a, a beautiful garden in uh, France or a biblical garden or something and today suddenly in the middle of an urban sprawl uh, a green space what's going on here and what captured your attention?
1: Well I'm an architectural historian I'm not uh somebody who is versed in landscape uh and I was just completing uh my uh, most recent book before this uh which was a, uh, a book about the wonderful uh, cultural center in Athens that was designed by Renzo Piano. And um, it was, uh, each chapter was devoted to a different part of this cultural center. There was an opera house, there was a concert hall, and there was also a new park uh, designed by an American landscape architect called uh, Debbie Lev- Nevins. And so I realized to, uh, to, to make a chapter on that park, which I had to do to make the, you know, to make the book uh, symmetrical, so to speak, with a chapter devoted to each part of the, uh, of the cultural center, that I had to do some research. And so I did, and I made contact with some landscape architects, and I did some reading, and I became absolutely fascinated uh, by the subject of landscape architecture. Uh, and um, one thing led to another and especially with the you know uh, with the um, stimulus of some of the people I met in the, in my research for this this one chapter uh, I decided that it might be interesting to to write a book devoted to parks
0: well first of all what is a park in your opinion what is it other than a sort of green space where people can find refuge it is a place of refuge ultimately isn't it
1: well, it's many things. And it is, of course, uh, primarily uh, a green space. Although there have been some recent parks, one in Berlin in particular, uh, that have no uh, vegetation, that are just uh, uh, you know, man made uh, materials, uh, but it, they create a, uh, a public space. Um, but that's rather unusual. Uh, so I would say that, generally speaking, uh, a park is a green space. Uh, That has many, many purposes. I mean, first and foremost, it's a public space. It's a place open to uh, certainly in the United States and and in Europe, uh, not everywhere in the world, but in the United States and Europe, it's open to the public uh, with free of charge. And um, it is a place where recent parks, which is what my book is about, uh, pay a lot of attention to uh, aspects of the environment and especially uh, environmental issues that are now extremely important in view of climate change, starting with uh, water management for flooding, uh, which many, many, uh, or I would say all of the parks in my book, which, has, which discusses 52 parks, all of them have some uh, relevance to water management.
0: The book is divided into many sections, and I, I'd like you to talk about different names there's inland industry quarries strongholds future uh, waterside industry parks waterside industry park systems what does all this mean where do these names come from
1: well every park in the book uh, is a remediation of a former use they all are uh, built on uh, in on sites that were used for something else, uh, usually industrial use. Factories—that's th- what those names refer to. Uh, railroads, factories, um, and whatever the other uh, the other uh, chapter titles uh, refer to. Airports, also uh, highways. Uh, in each case, the park was created on uh, the site of that kind of purpose. I mean, we now are no longer in the industrial era. We are now in the post-industrial era. And so these 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 former activities have all become obsolete. And uh, the areas they occupied uh, are usually extremely um, uh, well suited uh, to the creation of a park.
0: The very first park in the book is uh, in Detroit, uh, the DeKendra Cut Park. Oh, What is this all about? Why is it, this park in Detroit uh, particularly striking? Why is it first in the book? Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: It was at the origin of the book because one of the people that I met when I was doing my research for the uh, Athens Cultural Center Park uh, is the head of the uh, landscape architecture department out in uh, the Midwest. She uh, it was the first person who mentioned the De Quindra Cut to me. It is an old uh, passageway that has been used for, for many years for uh, hiking and uh, bicycling and so forth. One of the projects uh, in the uh, effort to restore Detroit to uh, a, a better condition than it has known in the last few years when it's had so many financial problems uh, was to renovate this uh, passageway this, and uh, make a kind of uh, ground level High Line, uh, uh, if you will. In fact, the work on it started before uh, work started on the High the famous High Line in New York. Uh, and um, it, the first few uh, miles of it uh, were completed uh, almost simultaneously at the, uh, with, the, with the High Line. And it has proven to be extremely uh, popular.
0: You know, uh, you used the term before to describe yourself, which is what you are, architectural historian. I'm curious, uh, how does someone become an architectural historian? Uh, we've had great architects on this program before. We've had great historians. Uh, we've never had an architectural historian. It, it, it starts with a passion. And then what happens? You are, are you sucked in by the history? Are you sucked in by the buildings? Is it a magnetism of uh, design that grabbed you and made you go down this interesting professional path? Uh,
1: Well, that's that's a very good question. Um, My field really is literature. And I had I I had I had been working uh, in publishing uh, both in Gallimard in in Paris for a while and then with George Braziller in New York for, for a number of years. And uh, George Braziller, who is notoriously eccentric and unpredictable, uh, walked into my office one day with a bunch of manuscripts and informed me that he had just uh, fired his uh, architectural editor. And he, was, uh, he didn't ask me, he told me uh, that I, these manuscripts that he, were hold, he was holding, which were all about architecture, uh, were now my responsibility. So the first thing I did was to try and learn something about architecture because I was completely uh, unversed uh, in, in the subject. And in fact, I enrolled uh, in graduate school at Columbia and got myself a master's degree in, in architecture and uh, what is now uh, generally referred to as uh, architectural history. Um, so, you know, I mean, architecture has been around since, uh, the days of uh, the caveman Um, in in, in prehistory. Anything that protects a human being from the elements uh, can be considered uh, architecture, mud brick in the the Middle East, uh, huts in Africa. Uh, There's all sorts of different styles. There's different regions, um, different building types, cathedrals, churches, arenas, uh, residential, and so forth. And uh, I mean, since Vitruvius actually was uh, considered the first uh, theoretician about uh, architecture uh, in the Renaissance, and um, that process has continued to this day with architecture critics, uh, or, if you will, architectural historians.
0: Studying architecture, when do things get really interesting? What period for you grabbed you and didn't let go? What part of the world fascinates you to no end.
1: Well, I think in the United States right now is one of the most interesting periods. I mean, just to mention one of the more uh, surprising uh, things that's happening is 3D printing. Um, they actually have figured out a way of printing um, uh, a small, bu- a relatively small building. Uh, and it comes out, the building turns out to be in a, in a kind of concrete, but it is actually made from a gigantic industrial-sized printer. And it's a fantastic uh, thing for low-cost housing.
0: Why is it so interesting that buildings might be 3D printed? What, what does that do for you as an aesthetic-interested person? Is, it, is that anything more than novelty, really?
1: Oh, much more. I mean, we have a, we have a worldwide housing crisis uh, uh, at the moment. And uh, one of the problems is building uh, inexpensively enough uh, so that uh, these uh, facilities can be made available to people with uh, limited income. Uh, so, I mean, uh, 3D printing is, is one of the, one of the most, uh, uh, the least expensive ways of creating a building
0: but it's practically interesting but is it artistically interesting?
1: I the ones I've seen are very attractive. Yes. Yeah,
0: how, wh- wh- where are they and what do they look like?
1: Well, there's a whole there's a whole uh uh there's a whole group of uh buildings uh made this way in Mexico. Um uh a few uh, a few miles uh drive away from Mexico City. Uh and they're very neat, they're small of course. Um but they uh, they're very neat, and uh, there uh, I understand there's a similar uh, project taking place um, in the uh, in the southwest uh, of the U.S. And uh, all of the images I've seen are uh, are very convincing. They're, they're very neat, small buildings.
0: Let's talk about East meets West. Uh, there's a lot in this book about China. Uh, how many parks in this book are in China,
1: I can't tell you exactly. I don't. I don't remember many.
0: I, I, I think many. It's, it's maybe fair. a
1: third. Maybe a third. A third. And we and... did our research uh, online. Uh, we started. Uh, I I immediately uh, hooked up with uh, a professional landscape architect to help me with this book because, as I said earlier, uh, it's not it's not my uh, area of expertise, and so we started our research by uh, looking at new parks, parks that had been created since uh, the year 2000 uh, online. And what we would do is when we found something that we thought was worth visiting, we would visit. And um, we soon, very, very soon, uh, very early in our research, we realized that some of the most uh, extraordinary parks, uh, aesthetically and uh, in terms of size uh, also, very, very large parks, were in China. And actually, to write the book, we we made two trips uh, to China to to visit parks.
0: Indeed, you write here the uh, most significant discoveries of many extraordinarily beautiful new parks in the People's Republic of China. Alex, your photographer, Alex Pisha, and I were particularly struck by the similarity between efforts at ecological improvement being made in those parks. And in current parks in the West, Western and Asian parks have very different antecedents, you continue. And this is reflected in the alternative means by which they take shape. In the United States and Europe, democratic ideals were the linchpin of the 19th century park movement. Green spaces were intended to be areas for public gathering and moral uplift. Equally important, they provided a healthful respite from the miserable living conditions of the urban poor and new immigrants. By contrast, China has no tradition of public space. Late in the 19th century, only a handful of privately owned European style gardens in Shanghai, uh, for one, provided green space where the wealthy could regularly enjoy entertainment and social interaction. So uh, how new is this for China? Talk about the difference between uh, the two traditions, tradition that we have in the West, a great tradition of public parks and the tradition of absolutely zero in China?
1: In the US, uh, when a community uh, or a city government decides to build a park, uh, there are a series of meetings with the people who are going to be using this park. And it can sometimes uh, extend to literally hundreds of meetings. Uh, and you can imagine how long that takes uh, with questions and problems that are raised uh, and on and on and on. So without that, there is no such uh, there is no such communication with the public in China, and without the need to to have all these meetings, uh, parks get built very very quickly in China. There's also another reason why they get built so quickly, which is that the the public officials who are in charge of a project are usually elected uh, for a time that is about five or six years. So they're very, very eager to finish the project um, before their term of office uh, is finished. And so uh, people working in China on parks, American landscape architects, for example, are just astounded at how quickly uh, parks get built in China for those reasons.
0: Without a tradition, where did this all come from in China? You you talk about how uh, spaces just get left empty and abandoned in China all the time, and something has to go fill them in. When did this start? What happened in the society to make it? It's,
1: it's, the rumor? it's rel- yeah, it's relatively recent, uh, and it's the same situation as in the West in the sense that uh, all of these uh, sites uh, on which there are now very beautiful parks uh, were formerly uh, used. Uh, for for a different purpose, many many times, uh, just for, as a as a kind of waste gathering place, uh, a brownfield, what we call a brownfield here, and uh, so I think this movement it really is is in China is is relatively uh, recent, with the you know the new awakening to uh, the need to repurpose uh, areas that were uh, formerly occupied by. Uh, airports for example uh, there's a, a a small park actually uh on uh, on the edge of uh, of uh, shanghai uh, that used to be the airport for for Shanghai but shanghai has grown so enormously uh that of course that quickly became obsolete in in the last decade uh, it's been replaced by two enormous airports and that And that space now has a lovely little park on it.
0: Let's talk dollars. Some of the parks here seem very inexpensive. Others are hundreds of millions of dollars or more. Uh, And when you look at the pictures, at least when I browse through this uh, wonderful book, um, Parks of the 21st Century, Reinvented Landscapes, Reclaimed Territories, uh, it's striking to see the price tag that you list at the top. Why did you want to put the price. Why is it interesting to have the price of a park? Uh, and do you find there's necessarily a correlation between how much it costs and how, frankly, good it is? Uh,
1: well, first of all, I would say uh, I, I I don't find a, a correlation between the, the cost and uh, and how good it is. We put in the price uh, because we, we had hoped that Uh, architects and landscape architects would use this book and we thought it would be interesting uh, for people in the profession uh, to have that information Uh, but some of the best parks we've seen uh, for example a park uh, on the outskirts of frankfurt in in germany uh, that was a small uh, u.s air base uh, and uh, another uh, larger park on the outskirts of uh, paris that had been uh, agricultural, and it had been uh, a, a quarry, actually, uh, a gravel quarry. Um, are self um, uh, s- uh, self um, uh, perpetuating? They uh, uh, they have very they have no uh, formal design, and uh, the designers uh, working on those areas have just allowed the vegetation to grow up on its own, and It's an amazing thing how vegetation does develop Uh, if you just leave it alone. Bushes and even trees, uh, which then uh, attract uh, wildlife, birds then start bringing seeds uh, and parts of plants uh, to the area, which then um, grow on their own. So those parks are are relatively inexpensive. To create uh, the biggest cost for some of them is to clean up the site before going on. Uh, there's a, an enormous park being planned here in um, Staten Island, which is going to be twice the size of Central Park. And uh, that had been the uh, infamous garbage dump uh, that for years uh, was an embarrassment uh, to, for the city, uh, this really huge, ugly. Uh, dump. Uh, and it cost the city hundreds of millions of dollars to clean it up because of the noxious gases that had penetrated uh, into the uh, into the land. But now it's, you know, vegetation is coming on its own.
0: You mentioned the park in near Frankfurt. I'm, I'm looking at it here, um, built or at least unveiled in 2004, the Alter Flugplatz and uh, 19 acres cost $1.07 million. It must be one of the one of the least expensive yes. parks in the book, if not the least expensive. Yes, and it has a a, a sort of um, semi-abandoned, desolate feel to it, but it's very beautiful at the same time. I, I mean, it is a former airport, and there, there are runway fragments in the grass, <laughs> and um, but yet it does look like a park in a sense. Uh, and, and you write that Germany subject to land use plans that define state, regional, community, and individual building regulations. There's very specific rules that have to be worked around to produce something like this. Why is this so attractive to you? 19 acres is b- pretty small, and a million dollars is nothing. So what's what, why is this park so special?
1: Well, they, the landscape architects were very clever because rather than trying to... Um, take away all the asphalt and concrete uh, that uh, occupied this site uh, for the runways and for the whole uh, airport. Uh, they broke it up, they broke it up into uh, pieces of different sizes, small, medium, and large, and just left the broken up pieces uh, on the on the ground and it was around these uh, pieces of uh, of uh, abandoned concrete that the vegetation grew, grew up; it just grew up on its own. And uh, I think one of the uh, one of the elements of a park that for me is essential to making it successful is surprise and mystery. And um, that this park certainly has that. I mean, I talk in the text about going through the kind of opening in a in a little uh, group of trees at the end of uh, at one end of the park. And it really is uh, like an exploration. I mean, you have the feeling that you're there. You were the first people to discover this opening in the in the beautiful trees, and the you know with the light filtering through and dappling the uh, the, the the surface you're walking on. Uh, so you know we found it, it we found it very uh, intriguing. I mean, also the fact that people just wander around in these. Uh, grassy areas and make their own paths uh so you never you know it's not laid out for you it provides an element of constant discovery
0: as you know on this program everybody talks a little bit about music i know you are a a passionate uh, music lover you you wrote a book on uh concert halls all around the world um of course we could talk about that book for hours and hours and hours i'm sure i've played in many of them uh what is um what is music to you victoria newhouse
1: well, music is a very important part of my life. I go to a lot of concerts and I go to a lot of opera, very, very often in small uh, uh, venues that are, uh, that are occupied uh, by uh, uh, small companies like on-site opera, for example. Um, and uh, I'd love, uh, of course, classical music, which I believe is your uh, uh, interest. Uh, but I also love um, classical contemporary, like people like Julia Wolfe or the Chinese uh, composer Wang Ro, Nico Mouli, whose uh, two boys uh, play at uh, uh, the Metropolitan Opera. Friend uh,
0: of mine, good composer.
1: Yes, yes, very good. I'm glad you. I'm glad to hear you say that. And one of my favorites, actually, is Kaija Sariano, the Finnish uh, composer, who also has. Uh, has created a, a number of very very beautiful operas.
0: What did you do in the pandemic? What are you doing now? Are you going back to live concerts? Or oh, are you, of course! Uh, I could not wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you weren't scared off forever.
1: No, 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 certainly not. And what did you do during the pandemic?
0: I started this podcast that isn't oh, going. How <laughs> <laughs> that isn't going to that has too much momentum now to give it up. So here we are. Oh. <laughs> Good. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, I, I did concerts here and there. Uh, very, um, I remember the, the 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 first concert with a full audience, very memorable to me. was in uh, Virginia at the concert hall that Lauren Mazel built. Of course, the feeling, you know, of people in the audience is uh, a little different than when you're doing it for microphones and cameras. <laughs> it's quite different to have people there. Uh, it was very gratifying. Of course, here we have. 52 parks all over the world how hard was it to choose who got in who didn't get in and how did you even hear about some of these places some are in very kind of arbitrary seeming strange places it's not like uh, everything is in new york city paris london and rome here
1: mm-hmm. well alex pisha who is my uh, uh helper my collaborator on the book uh who is a Professional landscape architect. Um, he had a number of ideas uh, about how to go about researching this, and um, uh, we uh, it was pretty it was pretty easy to figure out from what what's online. I mean, availability is is just amazing. It, we really were able to tell a lot, and um, we had very few disappointments. I mean, after making a choice. We had one or two. I can't remember exactly now uh, uh, which ones they were, uh, but but they were rare and, and and few.
0: You mean you showed up to a park and you said this isn't good enough to go in the book? Yes. Yeah. And what about a place wouldn't be good enough? Obviously, it's your okay. It's your personal taste because you wrote the book. <laughs> but other than that, what? What was disappointing? Was it the layout? Was it the materials? Was it the atmosphere?
1: Well, remember, they—you know these parks that we decided to include in the book had to conform to certain criteria. The first one was that they were repurposing something else. So that already narrowed things down. Um, there had to have been something there before uh, the park. Uh, and then it had to; they had to be uh, attractive. Just to, trying to remember why we uh, uh, we uh, rejected some. I think maybe uh, there was a, a sense of you know no or no sense of the way they were being used. I mean, one thing that was very important to us was to see uh, you know who was using these parks and uh, and how they were using the parks. Like for example, the Flugplatz in in Frankfurt that you just mentioned. Um, I mean that park is is so popular with all all generations. I mean we saw older men sitting around playing chess and playing cards. Uh, we saw you know uh, uh, younger adults um, bicycling uh, through it on their way to other other places, and children with no playground. I mean there was no playground equipment whatsoever. And yet children were having an absolutely wonderful time there. So if we came to a park and it seemed, you know, lackluster, uh, lifeless, we would not include it.
0: Uh, you mentioned New York City before you mentioned Stanton Island. Of course, there is an emphasis in a, a bit of a sense on uh, New York in this book. And, and we would think, well, where could there possibly be more parks uh, in New York? Where is there space? Indeed, there's a massive park. Uh, the Brooklyn Bridge Park, uh, there's a massive park, Hunter's Point South Waterfront Park uh, in Queens. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening have certainly been to the Brooklyn Bridge Park. Uh, I was there pretty recently. It's, uh, it's absolutely great. The only problem is it was, um, it's too popular. It was too crowded. It, w- it was overrun with people. But I guess that's a good problem to have uh, if, if you're a park. Why focus on these New York parks?
1: Well, you know, I'm a New Yorker and <laughs> always have been. I was born and bred here. And so naturally the city, the city interests me. And um, I happen to live in a, in a high rise building that's just across the East River from Hunter's Point South. So I saw that park <laughs> being built. Uh, every day when I got up and, uh, you know, walked to my window uh, before I had breakfast, uh, I could see, you know, what was happening there. So that was a, that was a natural. Also, I happen to be uh, very interested in the problem of affordable housing, which is something, a uh, subject that I'm working on now for my next book. And, um, you know, this park was uh, built to accommodate uh, an enormous uh, group of uh, buildings that are, will be 100% affordable housing.
0: Why is affordable housing interesting to you?
1: Uh, Because I don't like seeing people sleeping on the streets. Uh, Yeah. So
0: uh, when we spoke with Daniel Liebeskind, he said he was turning his attention to affordable housing too. But what are people who've devoted their life to the art of architecture? You devoted your life to writing about the aesthetic pleasures, uh, the history of architecture. Uh, Aren't you going to miss this if you only focus on the problems that this is going to solve versus the beauty of uh, the buildings? Are you abandoning an aesthetic obsession?
1: Uh, affordable housing can be very beautiful. Um, I've I've visited a lot of uh, recent buildings uh, uh, in, in New York and even older buildings, uh, uh, which are very, very interesting in themselves because uh, buildings that were created in the 70s, one of which just had this terrible fire, Uh, which was covered extensively in the the popular press, um, were hailed at the time as uh, beacons of aesthetic design, uh, and they just have not held up uh, well, which is a whole other uh, subject. I mean, part of it is maintenance, part of it is uh, uh, not keeping up with security issues and so forth, but there's no reason why affordable housing, like, for example, the 3D printed houses, um, why that it can't be uh, attractive.
0: Is that something an architect would actually design, an established architect would design uh, so. a, a 3D printable apartment building? Uh,
1: absolutely. And, you know, the early modernists uh, uh, like uh, Alto in, uh, out in California or uh, all, of the, all of the early modernists uh, built uh, low-cost housing. Uh, it was just something that was expected. You were expected to do that. Uh, I'm talking about the 20s, uh, even earlier than the 20s. But uh, and many of those buildings still exist, and uh, many of them are very successful aesthetically as well as functionally.
0: You look back at the past decades of American architecture. What names? stand out to you that should stand out to us in the general public of course we have extremely famous names that everybody knows but well, what architects should we should we look at if we want to sort of self educate in a way we want to buy a coffee table book or we want to just go on google and, and and look what what american architects to you stood the test of time that that you greatly admire that we should admire too
1: well uh, I mean, the obvious ones are Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, who I think uh, created so many uh, rules and so many forms that uh, have, are still being, uh, are still an inspiration. Uh, Mies van der Rohe, uh, uh, again, uh, one of the greats. Uh, I uh, Coming up to the present, I mean, I think that your, your uh, mention of uh, Daniel Liebskin, I think he is one of the great architects today, uh, as is Frank Gehry.
0: Next book you mentioned is going to be on affordable housing. Is is it going to be on the history of affordable housing, the present, the future, all of it, the architectural possibilities of affordable housing, uh, combined with the practical problems it will solve? What's the scope of this next book?
1: Well, I'm writing it again with uh, with the help of a collaborator uh, at this time, a, a, an architect, uh, Alex Gorlin, and we are the tentative title for the book is. Uh, affordable, question mark, housing, uh, a wake-up call. And it is absolutely not on the history. Uh, there's been hundreds of books written about the history of affordable housing, and we don't want to repeat that. Uh, what we're doing is uh, inviting various experts in the field about different aspects of affordable housing, starting with design, as a matter of fact, and uh, going on to financing and uh, um, zoning and uh, Race relations, uh, and so on and so forth. So each one of those subjects, and we have we've we've decided on eighteen subjects in eighteen chapters. Well, each one will be written by a different person uh, who who is knowledgeable uh, in that field.
0: We will look forward to that very much. Uh, in the meantime, uh, with some beautiful parks, some less uh, beautiful, but all certainly compelling uh, in this book. Parks of the 21st Century Reinvented Landscapes Reclaimed Territories Beautiful looking book I must say, and uh, certainly generously Proportioned, uh, gives us A wonderful feel Of these many striking urban Spaces everywhere from Mexico City to Shanghai to New York To the French countryside Victoria Newhouse, I indeed Thank you.
1: Thank you Uh, It's a privilege to have been on your show
0: You've been listening to Talking Beats With Daniel Lelchuk, I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.